You are listening to the Men's Raya podcast, and this is the story of Jerry McGinley. Mallard is a small village that sits on the shores of Loch Urn in Enniskillen, County Fermanagh. It's a predominantly Protestant area and is considered an affluent corner of Northern Ireland that is frequented by fishermen and water sports enthusiasts. As with many villages and towns along the Northern Irish border, the inhabitants of Enniskillen regularly cross into the Republic, with many choosing to work and shop in the surrounding counties of Leitrim, Sligo, Cavan and Donegal. On August 16th, 2000, Sergeant William Stevenson from Enniskillen Police Station called to the house of 34-year-old Jared McGinley to speak to the man about the non-payment of a £50 motor fine. Mr McGinley, a father of two young children, wasn't present at the house, but Sergeant Stevenson spoke to his wife, Julie, who told the officer that Jerry had left the area a few days before, as he was worried about the prospect of spending time in prison as a result of pending drug charges he was facing over the border in the Republic. The charges in question related to an incident that had occurred a few months before, in June of 2000, when Gardaí in Ballyshannon, Donegal, received a tip-off that a large quantity of drugs was to be transported from Enniskillen to Sligo by Jerry McGinley. The informant gave details of the vehicle that would be used and on the back of this information, Gardie set up a roadblock in Black Lion, County Cavan. They stopped Jerry in his wife's BMW. On searching the car, they found small quantities of ecstasy and cannabis, along with a brown powder, which later transpired to be cooking spices. The drugs were located exactly where the informant said they would be, under one of the seats in the car. Jerry reacted violently as Gardie arrested him, vehemently denying any knowledge of the drugs. According to Julie McGinley, Jerry was worried that he would face jail time for the offence. She said she had last seen her husband on the morning of August 13th, when he had packed some clothes, taken a thousand pounds from the proceeds of their furniture sales business, and left their family bungalow in Derry Raggan and Eskillen. When pressed for further details, she said that Jerry had been travelling in a green or blue Toyota car with a Donegal or Dublin registration. Julie told Sergeant Stevenson that Jerry's family had wanted the police kept out of his disappearance, and that was why she hadn't filed a missing persons report. The policeman told her that she should speak to Jerry's family again, and if she was still worried, she should contact the police station to file a missing persons report. A number of days later, on August 18th, Julie McGinley had a change of heart. She attended Ballina Mallard Police Station and reported her husband missing. She told officers that on the night of August 12th, herself and Jerry had gone to the Fort Lodge Hotel in Enniskillen, which was a regular socialising spot for the couple. They spent the evening in the company of their business partner, Michael Monaghan, with whom they ran a furniture wholesale business called Furniture Direct. They were also joined by another acquaintance, PJ McPadden, 
with whom Michael Monaghan had been staying temporarily. Jerry drank seven or eight pints over the course of the night and at 2am they left the hotel and headed for home. Since she had only consumed two drinks, Julie drove the couple back to their home in Derry Raggan. Julie described her husband as being suicidal in the weeks leading up to his disappearance and he had told her that he would be, quote, better off dead. She also told officers that three years earlier, Jerry had attempted to take his own life and that she had saved him from hanging himself from his daughter's swing set in their garden. During this incident, Jerry was deprived of oxygen for several minutes and as a result, he spent three days on life support in the urn hospital. When he came around, he was due to be committed to Tyrone and Fermanagh Hospital, an acute mental health inpatient facility located just outside Oma. But instead, Julie said that she insisted on taking him home to look after him herself. When officers asked Julie about her relationship with Jerry, she revealed that it hadn't been smooth. She claimed that there was a history of domestic abuse which had escalated after this suicide attempt, culminating in an incident at the end of December 1999, where Jerry stopped a taxi that the couple had been travelling back from town in and took Julie into a field to beat her. Following this incident, Julie went to her GP, who told her to leave Jerry, and the couple had separated for a month. During the time they were apart, both Julie and Jerry became involved in other relationships. Julie began seeing a local businessman named J.J. Maguire, and when Jerry found out, he was furious. He threatened to take his own life if Julie didn't come back to him. He also poured yellow paint on J.J. Maguire's windows and headbutted the window of his jeep. Eventually, Julie and Jerry reconciled at the end of January 2000, after which Julie said his behaviour became more and more erratic. In late August, once Julie had gone to the police, a missing persons inquiry was launched and police set about checking hospitals, airports and ferry terminals. Searches were also made through Interpol, but police found nothing to indicate that Jerry might have left the country, something which was consistent with the fact that he had left his passport behind at his home in Derry Raggan. Due to his connections on either side of the border, Jerry McGinley's details were circulated in the media in both Northern Ireland and the Republic. Posters were distributed and his photograph was put on cartons of milk sold by the supermarket chain Iceland to raise awareness of his disappearance. However, no trace of him was found. As police delved further into Jerry McGinley's background, they uncovered a dark criminal history along with a complex web of failed businesses, torrid interpersonal relationships and bitter feuds. McGinley, it seemed, was no stranger to dodgy dealings and had known associations with members of both the Republican and criminal fraternity. In 1985, at the age of just 19, he had been sentenced to nine years of penal servitude in Dublin for raping the wife of a serving Garda. Although McGinley pleaded guilty, he had always maintained his innocence, claiming that the whole thing was a miscarriage of justice which was fabricated by the Garda Siakona. In April of 2000, some issues arose between Jerry and the Real IRA, a splinter group of dissident Republicans formed in 1997 following the ceasefire in Northern Ireland, which the gang objected to. At the time, it was common practice for the real IRA to contact someone in authority in a given community to inform them if an individual was under threat. 
In Jerry McGinley's case, it was the parish priest of Enniskillen, Monsignor Sean Cahoe, who took the warning call just after 5pm on the 7th of April 2000. The male caller gave the priest Jerry McGinley's name and full address, and said that Jerry had until midnight to leave the area because of antisocial behaviour. This was suspected to be in reference to the rows that Jerry was known for having around the town of Enniskillen. Monsignor Cahill made a note of the threat, which he passed on to police. Following this threat, McGinley took Julie and their kids to stay with his family in Manor Hamilton, County Leitrim, until the heat died down. However, they returned to Enniskillen a few weeks later, and nothing more transpired from the situation. Despite Julie McGinley painting a picture of her husband as a depressed man with a history of attempted suicide, police were worried that something more nefarious might have befallen him, and it seemed that there was no shortage of people who would want to harm Jerry McGinley. On August 20th, Detective Sergeant Stevenson called to the McGinley's bungalow in Derry Ragan again, this time to speak to Julie McGinley. Detective Stevenson asked to see the bedroom that Jerry McGinley had allegedly taken money and clothing from on the morning that he left. Julie took him to the master bedroom, where he saw that the room was freshly painted. The bed appeared to be new, and the duvet was folded on top of it with two pillows. The bed linen also looked pristine, and the carpet did not appear to be tacked in at the skirting, suggesting that it too may have been newly installed in the room. Two days later, a decision was taken to search the Derry Ragan property to see if police could locate McGinley or find any signs of an abduction. Detective Sergeant Stevenson spoke to Julie again and she told him about four associates of Jerry that she was concerned about. The detective immediately recognised the names of the four men, mainly because two of them had a Republican background, while the other two were well-known members of a criminal gang. He asked again about the redecoration of the bedroom and Julie said that she had done the painting and PJ McPadden had laid the carpet. She said she had bought the bed and bedside lockers a few weeks before Jerry disappeared. Police knew that they were treading a very delicate line. On the one hand, they already had their suspicions about Julie McGinley. Although she seemed to be forthcoming and was willing to answer their questions, they found her story a bit too convenient and the redecoration of the master bedroom was a red flag. On the other hand, they now knew enough about Jerry McGinley's background to know that there were any number of people who could have potentially wanted to harm him. As a result of this search, the status of the case was changed from a missing person to that of a suspicious disappearance. Although they were keeping an open mind, police were looking closely at Julie McGinley, However, they found themselves somewhat hindered by their code of conduct, which dictated that a suspect must be cautioned before being questioned. Officers suspected that evidence had already been destroyed and they feared that if Julie knew she was officially a suspect, it would result in more valuable evidence being destroyed or moved. Compounding this was the issue of Monaghan and McPadden, who, as residents or ex-residents of the Republic of Ireland, could not be formally interviewed until police could conclusively prove that Jerry McGinley was dead. At the risk of losing more evidence, police decided to carry on without alerting Julie McGinley to her status as prime suspect in the disappearance of her husband. Julie McGinley was born Julie Bracken in 1971. Justine McCarthy, writing for the Sunday Tribune, reported that Julie grew up in a respectable Protestant family in Enniskillen, 
where she spent her childhood riding ponies and attending the local collegiate grammar school. However, at the age of 15, Julie's idyllic world fell apart when her mother died suddenly of cardiac failure brought on by an asthma attack. Unfortunately, the tragedy didn't end there. Just a year after the devastating loss of her mother, Julie was at the Cenotaph in Enniskillen with her younger brother on Poppy Day when an IRA bomb exploded, killing 11 people. In the melee that followed, Julie became separated from her brother and she frantically searched for him, turning over bodies on the street in an effort to find him. Eyewitness accounts of the incident were recorded in a book called The Remembrance Sunday Bombing. One passage recalled, quote, The wee girl Julie Bracken, her shoes blown off and her feet streaming with blood. She was hysterical, looking for her brother. He was up in the hospital. Both Julie and her brother survived the horrific event, but neither received any counselling to help them process what had happened. The following year, Julie suffered a further blow when she was involved in two serious horse riding accidents within a six-month period. Then she emigrated to Australia, where she lived with her sister for a period of time, before returning to Enniskillen and getting a job in the British Telecom call centre. In 1994, Julie went to a local garage with a work colleague who needed a new exhaust for her car. There, she met Jerry McGinley, a Catholic from Manor Hamilton in County Leitrim. He had moved to the north in 1992 following his release from Arbor Hill Prison. Jerry was at the garage looking to repair the lorry he was driving for a local haulage company. Julie's father was reported to be very upset with the relationship, but despite this, the young couple married seven months after meeting, in October of 1994. However, it was far from a life of wedded bliss. According to Julie, the relationship was punctuated with aggression and violence that escalated in intensity, eventually leading to the couple's brief separation at the end of 1999. Over the course of their marriage, the McGinleys had set up their own haulage firm, with Jerry owning and operating a number of lorries. In early 2000, the couple entered into business with an associate of theirs named Michael Monaghan, setting up a furniture wholesale and retail business called Furniture Direct, which was located in the Tempo Road Business Park in Enniskillen. As the police continued their investigation into Jerry's disappearance, the McGinley family were starting to form their own suspicions. They didn't trust Julie McGinley, and in their eyes, she had a history of deception and lies. Jerry's brother Harry had particular concerns, stemming back to Halloween of the previous year, when he'd been out socialising at the Fort Lodge Hotel with Jerry and Julie. He noticed on that occasion that Julie seemed to be flirting with the owner of the hotel, and later on that evening he observed her, quote, wiggling about as the bouncer of the venue put his hand up her skirt. He later confronted Julie, who asked him not to tell Jerry about what he had seen. Another thing bothering Harry was the fact that he had bumped into Julie at a Sunday market in Swanland Bar, County Cavan, on the day that Jerry had supposedly left. Julie had her daughters with her and she made small talk with Harry and his girlfriend, complaining that there was nothing at the market that she wanted to buy. She failed to mention that Jerry had left earlier that morning, despite the departure being unplanned. After parting company with Harry and his girlfriend, he watched as Julie picked up a set of new bed linen, paid for it, and left immediately. 
The McGinley family didn't hear from Julie again until two days later when she finally rang Jerry's father, Jerry Sr., to tell him that his son was missing. By that stage, his family were already beginning to worry. They were a close-knit unit and Jerry would normally ring and check in with various family members multiple times each day. Their concern intensified when Julie told them the circumstances surrounding Jerry's disappearance. They asked Julie to call the police to report Jerry missing, but she refused, saying that Jerry would kill her if he returned and found out that she'd involved the law. When the McGinley family had still heard nothing from Jerry two days later, Jerry Sr. and Harry had gone up to Furniture Direct to speak to Michael Monaghan to see if he knew anything. Monaghan told them that last he saw Jerry was on the evening of August 12th at around 5 or 6 p.m. as they closed the shop. Jerry Sr. had then spoken to Julie, asking if anyone had been around the house in the days leading up to Jerry leaving. She told him that a neighbour and friend of Jerry's named Robert Elliot had called on the afternoon of August 13th, but that she didn't have the time to talk to him. Jerry Sr. asked if she'd made a report to police and Julie told him that she had spoken to a sergeant from Enniskillen Police Station who would call to the house to collect a fine and that he had told her not to make a report for a week or so. Jerry Sr. and Harry had then called to Robert Elliot who told them that he had seen Jerry on August 12th and that Jerry had asked if he could borrow one of his vintage lorries for a parade the following week. This made no sense to the men. Surely, if Jerry had plans to leave the following day, he wouldn't have been looking to participate in the parade. Another element of Julie's story that didn't add up was the idea that Jerry was afraid of prosecution for the looming drugs charge. This was because Jerry had told his father a few weeks before his disappearance that Gardie had contacted him to say that no charges would be filed. As far as Jerry was concerned, he was in the clear. So why would he leave to avoid prosecution? Also in dispute was Julie's reasoning for not filing a missing persons report sooner. When she initially spoke to Detective Sergeant Stevenson, Julie told him that Jerry's family hadn't wanted her to report the matter to police. However, this was untrue. In fact, it was only when the McGinley family, along with Robert Elliot, continued to put pressure on Julie over the next few days that she finally relented and contacted the police, almost a week after his disappearance. With all the inconsistencies mounting, the McGinleys were certain that Julie was hiding something. Taking it upon themselves, they searched Jerry's lorries for any clue as to what might have happened to him. In one of the trucks, they noticed that an iron bar, which Jerry always kept in the cab, was missing. Jerry Sr. contacted the police station in Enniskillen, asking the officers to look for the iron bar. On the 26th of August, 13 days after Jerry McGinley had last been seen, a number of officers led by Detective Constable Barr went out to the McGinley bungalow in Derry Raggan to search for the iron bar. They knocked on the door to speak to Julie McGinley, but there was no answer, so they went around the back of the house. There, Detective Constable Barr discovered the iron bar lying on the ground. As he lifted it to place it in a bag, he noticed the remains of a fire nearby and went to investigate. Immediately, he identified the charred remains of furniture hinges, carpet, clothing and a watch. He poked around the ashes and removed a number of pieces of evidence, which he brought back to the station at Enniskillen. The next day, Detective Sergeant Stevenson returned to Derry Raggan for a second official search of the property. 
He spoke to Julie McGinley, who told him that, under the advice of her solicitor, she would not be answering any further questions. However, she went on to have a discussion with the detective about what Jerry had allegedly taken with him when he had left. This included a blue shirt, blue jeans, and a pair of black shoes from Dunn's stores. Julie also said Jerry had left his wedding ring behind and that he hadn't worn it in the previous few months. However, she said he had been wearing a watch with a silver metal strap that she had bought for him. When pressed again about the redecoration of the bedroom, Julie claimed that the work had been done at the end of the week after her husband had disappeared. She said the old carpet was taken to the dump in Monaghan's van and that the old bed had gone to Furniture Direct for resale. When the detective pointed out the wardrobe, which was missing its doors, Julie said that Jerry was having new doors made by someone, but that she didn't know where the old doors had gone. Detective Sergeant Stevenson drew Julie's attention to the remains of the fire in the back garden, and she told him that it was used for burning rubbish. When asked if anything from the bedroom had been burnt in the fire, she denied it, saying that the fire hadn't been lit in a few weeks. As police zeroed in on Julie McGinley as their main suspect, they began to investigate the couple's finances closely. They found that the McGinleys had a history of failed businesses, and that Furniture Direct was no different, with standing debts of over £76,000. Police also found a number of insurance policies that would be paid out in the event of Jerry McGinley's death. The first policy for £60,000 was taken out in November of 1995. Two years later, a further policy for £200,000 was purchased in Jerry's name, and in October of 1999, this policy was enhanced to £250,000. All in all, Julie McGinley stood to receive around £310,000 in the event of her husband's death. The months ticked on with no new developments announced, but in the background, detectives were hard at work piecing together their case. As part of the investigation, officers spoke to a wide network of Jerry's friends and associates in an attempt to build up a clearer picture of his life and relationships in the months leading up to his disappearance. During questioning, Julie McGinley maintained that she had been faithful to her husband, apart from the brief relationship with J.J. Maguire during their separation, and a quote-unquote one-off relationship with the owner of the Fort Lodge Hotel, John Sheeran. However, in the course of their door-to-door inquiries, a new lead emerged for Enniskillen Police when they spoke to Margaret O'Donoghue, who was the manager of the Tempo Road Business Park where Furniture Direct was situated. Mrs. O'Donoghue claimed that while working late one Friday evening, she looked out her office window and saw Michael Monaghan and Julie McGinley in a car together. They were in a state of undress and appeared to be in the midst of an intimate encounter. She said that on a subsequent Friday evening, she had witnessed a similar scene, this time in Monaghan's white transit van. When police put this to Julie McGinley, she denied that any affair ever took place between them. Police began digging for more evidence and in Monaghan's van they uncovered a notebook that had notes which were obliterated by scribbling. When examined by a forensic handwriting expert, these notes were found to be addressed to Julie and included phrases related to love. One said, quote, There's not one minute of every day that goes by that you were not in my mind. During a subsequent search, a love note was found in a pair of jeans alleged to have belonged to Monaghan, which read, quote, Mick, I really do love you very much. Love always, Julie. 
42-year-old Michael Monaghan was originally from Fintana, County Tyrone. After marrying his Sligo-born wife, Patricia, in 1989, the couple settled in Grange in County Sligo, where they had one child. But by the summer of 2000, his marriage was suffering due to his affair with Julie, and at the time Jerry disappeared, he hadn't been home to Grange in some time. Instead, he was staying with a friend, PJ McPadden, at his flat in Ann Street, Enniskillen. Monaghan's marital situation had become so volatile that a friend of his had reportedly witnessed Monaghan's wife, Patricia, confronting her husband at the Furniture Direct shop and slapping him across the face. Mrs. Monaghan was then alleged to have also slapped Julie McGinley across the face in a similar manner. Toward the end of September 2000, the case took a dramatic and salacious turn when a Sunday newspaper ran a story on Jerry McGinley, speculating that he may have been killed in a dispute linked to a major sex blackmail operation. It emerged that an anonymous source had contacted Crime Stoppers with the story, and upon investigation, police discovered a complex and sordid plot. Following Jerry's suicide attempt three years previously, he and Julie had hatched a plan to extort thousands of pounds from prominent businessmen and farmers in Fermanagh. The men would be seduced by Julie, who would bring them to rooms at the Fort Lodge Hotel in a blackmail sting operation. Jerry McGinley would then film his wife having sex with the men using hidden cameras and tapes of the sex sessions would be sent to the men, who would pay upwards of £2,500 to avoid exposure. The story caused a huge stir in the media both north and south of the border, adding more fuel to a story that had already captivated the public's interest. Given the sensitive nature of the extortion plot, police knew that they needed to move carefully and that it was unlikely that victims of the scheme would be forthcoming with information. Despite this sordid turn of events, police were still sure that Julie was somehow involved in Jerry's disappearance, but without a body, their case was mostly circumstantial, so they knew they needed as much supporting evidence as possible. In November of 2000, Michael Breslin reported in the Fermanagh Herald that four more detectives had been drafted into the team that was working on Jerry's disappearance. Resource-wise, this put the investigation at the same level as a murder inquiry. There were a total of 24 detectives working on the case, with 22 dedicated solely to locating Jerry McGinley. The police were working their way through 30 boxes filled with witness statements and evidence, and officers had gone to extensive lengths to interview anyone who had a connection with the missing man. This had resulted in taking statements from over 280 people, all of which needed to be indexed and added manually to the computer. Countless searches had been carried out at Derry Raggan, and police divers had searched Ballydoola Lake, which was around a mile from the McGinley home. Detective Chief Inspector Norman Baxter, who was leading the inquiry, issued a fresh appeal for information from anyone who was in or around the Fort Lodge Hotel on the night of August 12th. Christmas of 2000 came and went without any further developments in the case. In February of 2001, Jerry McGinley's parents made a heartbroken appeal to his killers to reveal his secret grave. In the six months since their son had vanished, Betty and Jerry Sr. had hired a number of clairvoyants and mediums in the hope of uncovering his location, but their efforts were fruitless. Betty McGinley told Martin Breen of the Belfast Telegraph, quote, We are in no doubt that our son has been murdered. 
when we just want to know where he is buried so we can give him a Christian burial. The not knowing and not having a grave to go to is complete agony. Breen reported that a major breakthrough was expected in the case in the coming weeks. Central to the case was an allegation that the drug seizure in Black Lion was a setup, and that someone had planted cannabis and ecstasy in the car before informing police. Detectives also confirmed that a videotape obtained by their team was also of vital importance. On the 21st of March 2001, Julie McGinley was arrested on suspicion of the murder of her husband, Jerry. Also arrested were Michael Monaghan and PJ McPadden. It was the first time in history that police in Northern Ireland had arrested someone on suspicion of murder in the absence of a body. Two days later, at a special sitting of OMA Magistrates Court, the trio were charged with Jerry McGinley's murder. The court heard that they had jointly arranged paramilitary threats and plotted an arrest for drug possession against the missing man, who was presumed dead. Also levelled at the group was a charge of perverting the course of justice by removing and concealing Jerry's body and redecorating the room where the murder was believed to have taken place. At the time of the arrest, Julie McGinley was found to be living with Michael Monaghan at an address in County Donegal. They had moved in the aftermath of Jerry's disappearance, opening a new furniture business in the small town of Stranelar. As the three remained in custody, Gardee commenced searches at lakes in Ballyshannon, County Donegal, but despite trawling the lake a number of times, nothing was found. Three weeks later, police divers began trawling a number of waterways in County Fermanagh, including a water-filled quarry, but this search also yielded nothing. Then, on the 3rd of June, two women were walking in Potter Woods, County Leitrim, with their children, when one of the little girls came across some rubbish strewn behind an uprooted tree. On closer inspection, she spotted skeletal remains wrapped in plastic sheeting, with the head and feet exposed. She called her mother over, telling her she'd found a skeleton. The group alerted Gardee, who sealed off the area and commenced a technical examination of the scene. Investigators could tell that the remains were that of an adult male, but due to the advanced state of decomposition, DNA analysis would be needed to definitively confirm the identity. However, it was quickly assumed that the body belonged to Jerry McGinley. The remains were taken to Cavan General Hospital, where a full post-mortem was carried out by Deputy State Pathologist Dr. Mary Cassidy. Dr. Cassidy found a number of injuries to the face and skull, and she concluded that the man had been struck by a heavy, blunt instrument. The blows to the right side of the face were so forceful that they caused damage to the left side of the face. This led Dr. Cassidy to believe that the man was lying down with the right side of his face exposed when he was hit. Death would have occurred due to the resultant brain injuries or from choking on the blood from the injuries. Bone and skin samples were taken for DNA analysis and less than a week later, the body was identified as Jerry McGinley. Following the discovery of Jerry McGinley's body, up to ten men, including prominent businessmen, farmers and even one police officer, rushed to their solicitors in Enniskillen fearing that the discovery and ultimate trial could result in video evidence of their affairs with Julie being exposed. In April of 2002, Lord Justice McCollum ruled that Julie McGinley and Michael Monaghan would stand trial for the murder of Jerry McGinley. 
both entered a plea of not guilty to the charges of murder and perverting the course of justice. Charges for PJ McPadden were withdrawn when the court agreed with his legal team's submission that his only involvement in the whole affair was to lift and lay a carpet. The trial opened at Belfast Crown Court on September 9th, 2002, with the proceedings receiving extensive coverage in the Belfast Telegraph and Leitrim Observer. Given the amount of witness testimony involved, the case was expected to last up to two months. In his opening submission, Terence Mooney, Queen's Counsel, alleged that Jerry McGinley was killed because he was an obstacle to his wife and her lover's affair. Mr. Mooney asserted, quote, they wished to conduct a relationship between themselves and continue as if Jerry McGinley never existed. The barrister told the jury that they would hear evidence that the two accused had beaten Mr. McGinley to death with a blunt instrument while he slept, before secreting his body away and smuggling it across the border. Tests carried out on Jerry McGinley's body determined that the blows to the head would have caused so much blood spatter that it would have been necessary to completely destroy all of Jerry McGinley's clothing, along with the bedclothes, to get rid of the blood contamination. Mr Mooney told the jury that although the prosecution case was circumstantial, by the end of the trial they would be convinced that both defendants came together and carefully planned and executed Mr McGinley's murder. He said, quote, They planned and participated in it together because they wanted to get rid of Gerald McGinley so that they could continue with a relationship. From their point of view, Gerald McGinley had to be removed, and they did remove him. Mr Mooney went on to tell the court that phone records would show that an intense flurry of communication occurred between Julie McGinley and Michael Monaghan in the early hours of August 13th. The prosecution's case would contend that this pattern of calls was consistent with the final part of the plan to kill Gerald McGinley. Bringing his opening statement to a close, Mr Mooney described Julie's actions after Jerry went missing, that she had made arrangements to sell his lorry and van, tried to sell the house and had his name removed from insurance documents. Actions, Mooney argued, that proved she knew he wasn't coming back. A number of witnesses were called who detailed Jerry McGinley's final hours and gave evidence of seeing the murdered man with his wife, Michael Monaghan and PJ McPadden in the Fort Lodge Hotel on the evening of August 12th. One witness said that Julie had seemed, quote, normal enough while Jerry was in good spirits. Heather Edwards, who babysat the McGinley children on the night of August 12th, wept as she gave evidence to the court. She described how Jerry had picked her up at home just before 11pm and had driven her to the McGinley bungalow. When he left with Julie just after 11pm, Jerry had been wearing a blue shirt with long sleeves. Heather Edwards said she did not see Jerry McGinley alive again after this time. When the car returned at half past two, Julie came into the house alone, saying that Jerry was out in the backyard. As she was getting into the car with Julie to be driven home, Heather told the court that she saw a man with a white t-shirt come around the house and go in the front door. The following morning, Heather and her sister returned to the McGinley house to return a quad bike belonging to the kids. They saw Julie outside with the two children, but according to Ms Edwards, Julie seemed, quote, eager to get rid of us. She also reported seeing Michael Monaghan and PJ McPadden at the back of the house beside Monaghan's white van. 
The sisters left after five minutes. About a week later, Miss Edwards was speaking to Julie when she mentioned the man in the white t-shirt that she had seen the night she babysat. The girl recalled, quote, She said I was very observant and that I should be looking for a solicitor. Then, Jerry McGinley Sr. told the jury how his son's family had come to stay with them in Manor Hamilton after Jerry's life had been threatened by the real IRA a few months before his disappearance and murder in August of 2000. When asked if he himself had spoken to the police about the threat, Mr McGinley said that the police were aware of it and had called in to see his son to inform him of it, so there was no reason to report it to them. He described the conversation he had with Julie on August 15th when she told him for the first time that Jerry had disappeared. The bereaved father recalled that Julie told him she'd woken up to Jerry putting some clothes into a plastic bag and he had said to her that he was going, that she didn't know how they work. Julie had also told him that Jerry had taken a thousand pounds in cash when he left. Jerry Sr. went on to tell the court that he had called out to Furniture Direct with his other son, Harry, to speak with Michael Monaghan. Monaghan told him he'd last seen Jerry when they'd closed the shop on Saturday evening. When asked about his son's conviction for raping the wife of a guard in Dublin, Jerry Sr. said that Jerry had always claimed he'd been set up and that this miscarriage of justice had caused him to be resentful towards the guardee. Jerry's younger brother Harry was next to take to the stand. He described seeing Julie acting flirtatiously with the owner of the Fort Lodge Hotel in October of 1999 and how she was later spotted on the same night, quote, playing around with the bouncer. Harry recalled that when he had confronted her over her behaviour, Julie had told him that she had been a friend of the bouncer for a long time and asked him not to tell Jerry about what he had seen. Harry was then asked about the events of August 13th and he described having been at a local Sunday market with his girlfriend and bumping into Julie McGinley with her two daughters. Julie allegedly complained to him about the quality of goods available, yet Harry recalled watching her a few minutes later as she bought a new set of bedclothes and then left, quickly. Four days later, Harry said he went with his father to speak to the accused Mr Monaghan who claimed not to have seen Jerry since Saturday evening and also denied being at the house in Derry Raggan on the Sunday afternoon. After speaking to Monaghan, the pair went to see Julie. Harry said that they'd asked her to call the police, but she'd refused, saying Jerry would kill her if she did so. Then he called to Robert Elliot, who became concerned when they told him that Jerry was missing. Mr Elliot then called the police, and Harry and Jerry Sr. went back up to Julie to try and convince her to do the same. Some of the more graphic evidence was given by Margaret O'Donoghue, who worked as the manager of the Tempo Retail Park. Mrs O'Donoghue claimed that she had peeped out her office window and saw Michael Monaghan and Julie McGinley in a car. It was just before they took possession of the business unit to set up Furniture Direct. Mrs O'Donoghue recalled, quote, Michael Monaghan was undressed on the bottom and Julie McGinley was lying underneath him on the passenger seat of the car, which was reclined. I just looked out through the slat in the blind and seen the two people in the car. I seen Mr. Monaghan's backside. A few weeks later, she claimed to have witnessed another encounter when she saw the pair kissing in Monaghan's white van. Under cross-examination from Terence MacDonald, Queen's Counsel, Mrs. O'Donoghue agreed that she had not seen the couple having sex. However, she maintained that she had, quote, seen Michael Monaghan with his trousers down and was very clear on the detail that she had 
seen his backside. She said that out of curiosity she couldn't help but watch and that she was shocked to see the pair, quote, courting in broad daylight without shame. After this, Robert Elliot took to the stand and told the court that Jerry had been his neighbour and that they had bonded over their interest in lorries. McGinley was interested in modern models, while he himself was more into vintage models. He said that on August 12th he had called into Furniture Direct as he was passing on his way to Enniskillen to buy the newspapers. Jerry wasn't there, but Julie was, and she was on the phone to Jerry, asking about clothes sizes as she was clothes shopping for him. Mr. Elliot called to the furniture store again on his way back from Enniskillen, and this time he said Jerry was there. He asked Mr. Elliot if he could drive one of his vintage lorries in an upcoming car parade the following week, which he'd agreed to. Then Mr. Elliot revealed to the court that Jerry McGinley had told him once that he had, quote, hired a hitman to kill another neighbour of theirs, a farmer named Willie Edwards, whom he had had a grudge against. Elliot also told officers about an altercation he had witnessed between Jerry and Edwards, where McGinley had chased Edwards' Land Rover, shaking his fist and hitting the door of the vehicle. An article in the Fermanagh Herald detailed how the court then heard that Julie McGinley had quit her job with BT following the disappearance of her husband, and that in the following months she'd moved across the border into Donegal. She'd rented a shop unit with Michael Monaghan in Castle Finn, but the business closed down within months due to money problems. Detective Sergeant Stevenson gave his account of calling to the McGinley home on August 17th to speak to Jerry McGinley about an unpaid traffic fine. He detailed the conversation that he'd had with Julie and how she claimed to be reluctant to file a missing persons report because of her husband's family. The detective sergeant told the jury about the numerous searches performed in and around the bungalow in Derry Raggan and the evidence uncovered in the fire on the property. The officer came under fire from the defence counsel for the failure to formally charge Julie McGinley or inform her of her status as a suspect in the case. Detective Sergeant Stevenson explained that police were faced with a particularly difficult inquiry from the outset. He admitted that technically the police were in breach of their own code of conduct, but he defended the decision not to charge Julie McGinley until a later date, as if they had done so, it could have caused other suspects to flee or evidence to be destroyed or moved. Following the detective's evidence, a neighbour of the McGinleys described how he had seen smoke from a fire at the rear of the McGinley home on August 15th, 2000. A friend of Monaghan's named Josephine McElroy testified next, telling the court that Monaghan was unconcerned when Jerry McGinley vanished, and he'd allegedly said to her, quote, Fuck him, he got what was coming to him. She said that Monaghan had told her that he didn't like Jerry McGinley and he claimed that McGinley hit his wife. On one occasion, he told Josephine that he had seen Jerry strike Julie in their shop. Monaghan was agitated about the incident, telling Josephine that, quote, that would be the last time he would hit her and that, quote, Tony McNairn was going to sort it out. Mrs. McElroy said she had taken no notice of it at the time, but that a while later, Monaghan had told her that McNairn had got £500 and didn't do the job. Mrs. McElroy claimed that she had visited Julie McGinley at her home and that Julie showed her the master bedroom, complaining about the state that the police had left it in. When Mrs. McElroy noticed a pair of curtains that she had sold earlier to Monaghan, Julie McGinley allegedly warned her that she could be done as an accessory if she told anyone that she had sold the curtains to Monaghan.
Patrick Owens, who operated as a furniture dealer, outlined for the jury how he had become acquainted with Julie McGinley and Michael Monaghan through business. He said that on one occasion, Monaghan told him that Julie's husband beat her a lot and that she would do anything to get away from him. He said that around the end of March, Monaghan had told him that Jerry McGinley was missing and that he would probably be found, quote, pushing up heather on a Leitrim mountain. He said that when his business was in trouble, Monaghan had introduced him to a man named Tony McNurn, who Monaghan said could help. McNurn brought Mr. Owens a lot of customers, and all the deals were done through a finance company, with McNurn delivering the furniture to the customers himself. However, within a few weeks, Owens realised that the customers were bogus, and so the finance company stopped the checks, leaving him down around £15,000. Mr. Owen said that Monaghan had warned him to be careful, alleging that McNurn had paramilitary connections. Next, a forensic handwriting expert named Stephen Maxwell gave evidence about the scraps of notes uncovered in Monaghan's van. Despite being obliterated by scribbles, the expert testified that both notes were addressed to Julie and talked about love. He also made out a passage which read, quote, If anything happens to me or goes wrong, don't worry. On October the 8th, Garda Liam Feeney from Ballyshannon Garda Station was called to the stand to give evidence related to the drug tip-off that had been received in relation to Jerry McGinley. It was the prosecution's case that the tip-off was a setup orchestrated by Julie McGinley and Michael Monaghan in an effort to get Jerry McGinley locked up and out of their way. Garda Feeney told the court that Tony McNurn, a known informant, phoned him on June 2nd of 2000 to give him information about a significant quantity of heroin, cannabis and ecstasy that was due to be moved across the border at Black Lion County Cavan before being taken to Sligo. According to McNurn, the drugs were worth about £10,000 and they would be transported in a dark BMW stowed under the driver's seat. The driver, he said, would be a man by the name of Jerry McGinley, who was well known to Gardee in Manor Hamilton and was, quote, a mad bastard who won't get caught easily. Based on the phone call from McNurn, Gardee arranged a checkpoint in Black Lion on the morning of June 5th, but Jerry McGinley failed to show. McNurn called again the following day to say that McGinley would definitely be passing through later that day, so a checkpoint was set up again, and at around 6pm, Jerry McGinley was stopped. Gerda Davy, who was the arresting officer, gave evidence that Jerry McGinley was very aggressive when cautioned and that he shouted that he was being set up. He continued to react violently as he was transported to Manor Hamilton Garda Station, roaring, quote, I can get someone that can shoot you. This behaviour continued inside the station and Garda Davy reported that at one stage Jerry McGinley jumped off a chair and ran at a wall, headbutting it. It transpired that far from the estimated value of £10,000, the drugs found were in fact only worth £800. Jerry McGinley was adamant that he had been set up and in a statement given to Gardee at this time, he explored the people who might have had reason to stitch him up. He gave a full account of his temporary separation with Julie, saying that he had entered into a brief relationship with a woman named Mary Maguire and that when he eventually reconciled with Julie, Mary Maguire took it very badly. This resulted in McGinley having to change his home phone number as Ms. Maguire was ringing him constantly. 
On the night of St. Patrick's Day 2000, Jerry said that he and Julie had gone for a drink in the Fort Lodge Hotel and Mary Maguire was there. He said, quote, Mary Maguire gave Julie the V sign and started to run her finger under her chin like someone cutting her throat. A fight then ensued between the two women and Ms. Maguire was removed from the pub. In the following days, Jerry said he had received a number of threatening phone calls, which he believed were coming from a man named Dermot Lochran at the behest of Mary Maguire. Dermot Lochran had known links to drug dealers and the insinuation was that he would have had the means to set Jerry up. Garda Davy confirmed to the court that in the end, Jerry McGinley was charged with simple possession of cannabis, a relatively insignificant charge that would not have resulted in jail time. Then Garda Pauline McDonough was called to the stand to recount a number of conversations she had had with Jerry McGinley following his arrest in June of 2000. She said that after his release, Mr. McGinley had phoned her repeatedly, each time claiming that the drugs had been planted. It was as if he was desperately trying to get someone to believe him, said Garda McDonough. He didn't seem to be bothered by the impending court case, but he was obsessed with finding out who had set him up. During one call, he claimed that his wife was having an affair with J.J. McGuire and that both McGuire and Julie were involved in the setup. Garda McDonough added, quote, he said that Julie wanted him out of the way. Jerry McGinley had also given Garda McDonough a list of five or six names to pass on to the authorities if anything happened to him. This list included J.J. McGuire and Mary McGuire, but didn't mention either Julie McGinley or Michael Monaghan. In an attempt to support the prosecution case that the setup was engineered by Julie McGinley and Michael Monaghan, Sergeant Leonard Bell gave evidence that in February of 2000, he observed Tony McNern talking to Michael Monaghan at Windmill Heights in Enniskillen. When the officer approached the men, they said they were simply talking about furniture. At this point, Julie McGinley came out of a nearby house and approached the men. When questioned by the officer, she gave her name as Julie Bracken and said she was coming over as she was also interested in the furniture that Monaghan had in his van. Evidence was then presented that when Monaghan's van was searched following his arrest, various pieces of paper with different phone numbers for Tony McNern were found. Despite Tony McNern being central to many running themes in the trial, he wasn't called to give evidence in court, and the failure to address why raised a number of questions for the defence. Forensic expert Donna Knowles took to the stand next, giving evidence on the various samples taken from Jerry McGinley's home and Michael Monaghan's van. Following the seizure of Monaghan's white transit van, a roll of brown parcel paper was found, still in its cellophane wrapping. Ms Knowles told the jury, quote, There was a small area of red staining, which I believed to be blood. Samples were taken from the stain and were sent to a laboratory along with a sample of Jerry McGinley's DNA. One of the samples taken from the roll was found to be a match to Jerry McGinley. Forensic scientist Damien Lyle told the court that, quote, the chance of obtaining this match between the profile and that taken from Jerry McGinley is one in a billion. However, he said that he was unable to say with certainty whether the DNA came from blood staining or from some other genetic material. No traces of blood were found in Jerry McGinley's bedroom, but forensic experts found a number of semen stains on the mattress. Samples were taken and it was found that the DNA matched Michael Monaghan. Samples were also taken from a semen stain on a pink satin slip, 
and this was found to come from J.J. McGuire. Evidence was also given regarding the fire debris found at the rear of the McGinley home, which was said to contain hinges that the prosecution claimed came from a wardrobe, and remnants of clothing similar to the items that Jerry McGinley was wearing when he was last seen alive. An investigator with legal and general insurers told the jury that despite Jerry McGinley being insured for over £300,000, his wife never attempted to cash in on the policies, and instead she continued to make payments on the premiums until her arrest in March of 2001. As the trial approached its sixth week, the evidence continued to get more technical. Over the course of two days on October 23rd and 24th, the jury heard extensive evidence regarding a complicated series of phone calls made between Julie McGinley, Michael Monaghan, PJ McPadden and Tony McNurn throughout 2000. A total of 13 mobile phones were presented as evidence with five of them belonging to Julie McGinley. These five phones were registered in a number of different names, including the names of two colleagues who had worked with Julie McGinley at BT. Of particular interest to the court were a series of phone calls made on August 13, 2000. One call was made to McGinley's house in Derry Raggan at 2.49am. This call, which lasted 17 seconds, was found to have originated from a payphone at the Fort Lodge Hotel. It was the prosecution's case that this call was an attempt to establish if Jerry McGinley was asleep yet. Tape recordings of the defendant's interviews were played for the jury to hear. In Julie's interview, she gave an account of the temporary separation between herself and Jerry at the end of 1999, describing him as a, quote, Jekyll and Hyde character who would go to Dublin to do you a favour, but the next day he would just change. When questioned about the man in the white t-shirt that the babysitter Heather Edwards had seen at the back of the McGinley house in the early hours of August 13th, Julie claimed that that was Jerry and that Ms. Edwards' view was blocked by a van parked at the rear of the property. Julie McGinley denied that she and Monaghan were having an affair and when presented with the various love notes and scraps of paper that the police had uncovered, she denied all knowledge of some and said that others were written by her and her kids as a joke. She also denied that her husband had been killed on the bed in their home at Derry Raggan. In Michael Monaghan's interviews, he also maintained that his relationship with Julie McGinley was purely friendship and denied that they were having an affair. He said that he knew there had been rumours about the pair but insisted that Julie was simply a business colleague and a friend. He also refuted Margaret O'Donoghue's claim that she had seen the pair in the midst of a sexual encounter on a number of occasions at the Tempo Retail Park, but he did concede that he may have been there in a vehicle chatting with Julie McGinley. When presented with records of the phone calls made on August 13th, Monaghan said he couldn't remember the details of the conversations or why the calls had been made. He denied any knowledge of the murder of Jerry McGinley, saying, quote, You were a mile and a half out. I didn't get rid of him. I have nothing to do with his murder. Monaghan also denied being involved in the drug bust setup of Jerry McGinley. On November 19th, after almost 10 weeks of evidence, the prosecution case drew to a close, and the defence began to call their witnesses. 
Terence MacDonald, Queen's Counsel, acting for Julie McGinley, and Jim Gallagher, acting for Monaghan, both confirmed to Justice Kerr that their clients would not be giving evidence in the case. The first witness called on behalf of Julie McGinley was a consulting engineer named Niall Cosgrove. He told the court that he had examined the door at Moffat Bracken's house. Mr Bracken was Julie McGinley's father. Mr Cosgrove found that the hinges that were found in the charred remains of the fire outside Jerry McGinley's house matched the hinges on Mr Bracken's door and that they were a good fit. This, he said, showed that the hinges found in the fire hadn't necessarily come from the wardrobe doors like the prosecution claimed. John Conran, a joiner, gave evidence that in late 1999 he had replaced six brown veneer doors at the McGinley house with new pine doors. He left the old doors and hinges at the property. A forensic scientist named Alison Dubery told the court that she had examined the debris from the fire. Police had already removed all relevant material. Ms Dubery said that the remaining debris contained nails, metal, pocket studs and parts of a magazine. Very common, unimportant family waste. Derek Fleming, a financial advisor, answered questions about the McGinley's finances. He told the court that it was he who suggested that the McGinley's increase Jerry's life policy when they'd met in 1999, as he said, it was way below average. He confirmed that Julie McGinley had not made contact with him after her husband's disappearance and had continued to make payments on the policy until her arrest. The final witness called for Julie McGinley's defence was Patricia McGeer, who had initially been asked to babysit for the McGinley children on the evening of August 12th. Ms McGeer said that she had been unable to babysit, but that her mother agreed to mind the girls if Julie brought them down to her house, as opposed to Mrs McGeer going to the McGinley home. Julie declined this, instead opting to call in Ms Edwards. Only one witness was called in Michael Monaghan's defence. Jacqueline Kingston, who rented out properties in Enniskillen, testified that at the time of Jared McGinley's murder, PJ McPadden was renting flat 3B at 3 Anne Street, with Michael Monaghan sleeping on the couch. Early in 2001, one of the other flats at the unit had become vacant, and Michael Monaghan approached her to talk about renting the flat. She said, quote, He told me he had been staying with PJ McPadden but that he was fed up with sleeping on the sofa and wanted to get a place of his own. Monaghan's defence submitted that this showed he was making plans for the future and was not, as the prosecution alleged, living with Julie McGinley. Ms Kingston told him to call her the following week to confirm the agreement to rent the flat, but Monaghan never made that call. Once evidence in the defence case concluded, Terence Mooney, for the prosecution, rose to deliver his closing speech. He acknowledged that the jury would not be judging the defendants based on the facts of their affair. He said, quote, This is a court of law, not a court of morals. But the affair is an important factor in the case. He referred to the paramilitary threats against Jerry McGinley and addressed the idea that his death could have been a paramilitary killing, saying, quote, there is no reasonable explanation of the threats to Jerry McGinley. If there was a reasonable explanation, you would have heard it from the mouths of the accused in the witness box. If this was a paramilitary killing, there would have been a statement issued, and details of why and how McGinley had been reprimanded would have been released. 
Mr. Mooney then spoke about the other people that had been named in court, such as John Sheeran and J.J. McGuire, who may have had a reason or motive to harm Jerry. The prosecutor asked the jurors to consider whether any evidence had been offered during the trial to suggest that these others had been involved in the abduction of Jerry McGinley. Mr. Mooney then speculated about Jerry McGinley's reaction if he had found out that his wife and Michael Monaghan were responsible for setting him up with the drugs, positing, quote, If Jerry found out the name of Tony McNern, the informant, it wouldn't have taken much more to find out about the others involved. And you can imagine what he would have done to those people. The Queen's counsel admitted that the Crown case relied on circumstantial evidence, but said that there was nothing in the defence case that could elicit a reasonable doubt. Concluding his speech, he asked the jury to consider the evidence carefully, because, Mooney argued, it all pointed to those accused, and nothing had been presented to the jury to suggest otherwise. Then Terence MacDonald, appearing on behalf of Julie McGinley, took to his feet and delivered his final argument for her defence. He placed gossip and speculation at the root of the case, saying, quote, There is not a shred of evidence that Julie McGinley murdered her husband. The prosecution say that Jerry McGinley was a violent man. The defence never set out to blacken or defame Jerry McGinley. The prosecution are now saying he was a violent man to prove to you that he was a threat to Julie McGinley and Michael Monaghan, so they have further motive to kill him. Mr MacDonald highlighted the elements of the case that the prosecution had ignored, as he said it didn't suit their narrative. This included the McGurs, who offered to take the McGinley children to their house for babysitting, which surely would have suited a murder plan better, had there been one. The life insurance motive was also suggested by the prosecution, but then, said Mr MacDonald, they failed to call Derek Fleming to the stand. Circling back to the issue of Jerry McGinley's violent tendencies highlighted by the prosecution, the QC said that this was the true reason that Julie hadn't reported Jerry missing. He claimed that his client had been afraid of what Jerry would do if he came back, and she, quote, had his face all over the lampposts in Enniskillen. Defence counsel then pointed out the fact that Jerry McGinley Sr. had said that his son had picked up quite a few enemies, and any of these would have had a motive to harm him. He concluded, quote, The evidence never did exist, and even after this lengthy trial, it still does not exist, and she should be acquitted. Jim Gallagher for Michael Monaghan made a similar plea for his client to be acquitted, before Mr Justice Kerr gave his four-day review of the evidence. Charging the jury of five men and five women, he told them that their principal and primary aspiration was to bring in a unanimous verdict on either the innocence or guilt of the accused. One principal question they had to answer, said the judge, was why would Mrs McGinley completely refurbish the bedroom in the week following her husband's disappearance? It took the jury less than three hours of deliberation to find both McGinley and Monaghan guilty of the murder of Jerry McGinley. Julie McGinley showed no emotion as the verdict was announced while Michael Monaghan slumped back in his seat in the dock. Less than a week after the pair were led from the court to begin their life sentences, they found themselves in the middle of another legal wrangling. UTV had produced a programme for their Insight series which detailed the murder of Jerry McGinley, with the original air date set for two days after the jury delivered their verdict. However, the show was pulled at the last minute after McGinley and Monaghan applied to the court for a gagging order. 
At a judicial review a week later, lawyers argued that both clients intended to appeal their convictions, and their right to a fair trial could be infringed if a jury was prejudiced by seeing material on TV that was not aired at their trial. UTV countered that before a quote-unquote fair trial right was engaged, it had to be established as a matter of probability that a retrial would take place. Ultimately, the gagging order was overturned and the show was broadcast the following night. Two months after being found guilty, the pair were brought before Belfast High Court for a tariff hearing to establish the length of time each should serve before becoming eligible for parole. Both appeared to have lost weight, with Julie in particular showing none of the confidence that she had displayed during the three-month trial. Terence MacDonald, appearing for Julie McGinley, pleaded for leniency for his client, asking the judge to consider her clear criminal record and the fact that she was a mother to two young children. Jim Gallagher for Michael Monaghan asked the judge to consider his client's age. He told the judge that Monaghan's wife had stood by him and that his son was just 10 years old. Mr Justice Kerr ultimately ruled that both Julie McGinley and Michael Monaghan should serve a minimum of 15 years before being eligible for release. As the judge handed down the sentence, Jerry's mother, Betty McGinley, broke down in tears. On Sunday, March 16, 2003, more than two and a half years after his murder, Jerry McGinley was finally laid to rest at St Patrick's Cemetery in Belcoo, County Fermanagh. Speaking to Ashley Wallace of the Belfast Telegraph, Jerry Sr. said that the family were relieved to finally lay Jerry to rest. Quote, It's obviously very sad, but we have got this far now, and we are happy we will now have a grave to visit. In October of 2005, Julie McGinley launched an appeal against her conviction, claiming that she was suffering from a personality disorder at the time of the killing, and while she admitted that she was in the house when Jerry was killed, she stated she was not complicit in the crime and she did not consent to it. However, true to style, the shadow of controversy was never far from Julie, and as she fought to put her case before the three appealed judges, the prosecution applied to see her disciplinary records from Magabry Prison. McGinley's lawyers objected to this, but the appeal judges ultimately ruled in favour of the prosecution with a stipulation that a high court master would view the records first and deem if they should be made available. This furore was due in part to rumours documented in the Belfast Telegraph that McGinley had been reprimanded for cavorting with both male and female prison officers and prisoners in her cell. Eventually, Lord Justice Nicholson issued a reporting ban on Julie's appeal, stating that the opening statement could be reported on, but nothing else could be published. He said that if reports were published, they could prejudice future appeals by McGinley and Monaghan. Ultimately, the appeal was rejected and the judges ruled that the original convictions were safe. Following the ruling, the reporting ban was lifted and details of the evidence given by Julie McGinley was published. As part of the appeal, she had given a statement that she insisted contained new evidence. In this statement, Julie McGinley claimed that she hadn't been complicit in the sex extortion racket and that Jerry McGinley had been forcing her to have sex with other men. If she didn't comply, she said that her husband would threaten and abuse her. She wrote, quote, He began to demand that I have sex with other men at his instigation. I continued to object but was eventually forced into having sex with other men. Julie also claimed that when she separated from her husband in late 1999, she intended for the separation to be permanent. 
However, she said, Jerry told her he had a videotape of her having sex with another man, and he threatened to show it to her father and work colleagues if she didn't reconcile with him. She felt she had no option but to move back into the house in Derry Raggan. Julie McGinley's statement detailed other episodes of alleged abuse, including one instance where she claimed that Jerry had threatened to smother her with a pillow. On the night of August 12, 2000, she said that Jerry had made it very clear that he expected her to have sex with Michael Monaghan and had made vile threats. Quote, he had also threatened me regarding the children and referred to the fact that they were two girls and said that since I was no use to him, it was a good thing two more were coming along. When she refused to comply with his demand to bring Michael Monaghan home, Julie said that Jerry became irate, shouting that he would find someone. She said after dropping the babysitter back, she returned to her family home. Jerry went into the bedroom and Michael Monaghan and PJ McPadden arrived not long after. PJ went to look for Jerry and a few moments later, Julie heard shouting and the sounds of a commotion. Michael Monaghan headed for the bedroom while she hid in the kids' room. When she opened the door again, she saw PJ McPadden with blood on his hands. Then, according to Julie, Michael emerged from the bedroom saying he thought Jerry was dead. She claimed that Michael told her that when he entered the bedroom, he saw Jerry throttling PJ and when he couldn't lift Jerry off the other man, he'd grabbed a nearby baseball bat and struck Jerry with it. Her statement concluded, quote, I respectfully request the court to receive this evidence because it is the truth of what happened. In August of 2007, Julie McGinley gave an interview to the Sunday World where she once again protested her innocence. The article included a quote from the co-director of Northern Ireland's Rape Crisis Centre, Eileen Calder, who said that she believed that McGinley was innocent. Ms Calder said, quote, The media bias and the judge's unsatisfactory charge to the jury in summing up her trial led to a conviction which is, for many reasons, unsafe. Then, in early 2008, the Assets Recovery Agency announced that Julie McGinley would receive no money from Jerry's life insurance policies or from the sale of their family home. Instead, any money would be placed in a trust for her two daughters. A year later, Julie McGinley made headlines again when an article published in the Belfast Telegraph claimed that she had hired a hitman from Tyrone in the months before her husband was killed. It was reported by David Keeley that McGinley had paid the mercenary a down payment of £4,000, but that she'd lost her deposit as she was unable to raise the remainder of the hitman's fee. Julie McGinley was freed from prison at the beginning of 2015, having served 14 years of her sentence. The 43-year-old was released as a Phase 3 inmate, meaning she was technically still a serving prisoner, but was allowed to live for the most part outside of the prison with the general public to help her adapt to normal life again. Under the conditions of her release, she was banned from the town of Enniskillen and its immediate outskirts. She was also prohibited from contacting the relatives of her victim and from indulging in alcohol or drugs. The following year, she was granted her whole life licence and has kept a low profile since. In October 2017, an article in the Sunday World reported that 60-year-old Michael Monaghan was working as a landscape gardener while on a work release scheme from Castlereagh Prison. He has managed to stay out of the limelight since. The only people who know the real truth of what happened to Jerry McGinley and the reasons behind it 
are those who were present at the McGinley home in the early hours of August 13th in the year 2000. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks to Oshin C., Shannon Walsh, and Tanya Molesky. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Aileen Spearin. Additional writing and production was by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Hold up. 